drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what things this meant. And he said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He was angry and he refused to go in. The father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when his son, but when this son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. And we say back to him, for all flesh is like grass. Glory like the flowers of the field, the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and grab a seat. Last week, we started a three-week kind of mini-series here in Luke chapter 15, and that's because from all that we've read and all that we've researched that's here in these tiny little parables, which are in other words for stories, you're going to find the essence of the Christian faith. It's here in these three stories, particularly here in this last story of the parable of the lost sons, we're going to find just the the underpinnings of what it means to be a Christian or what the Christian faith is, or another way to put it, what is the gospel itself? So you may have wandered in here and asked yourself, what is Christianity or what is the gospel? But we are encouraging you to go back to Luke chapter 15, read it, reread it, read it again, find some teaching on this because here is the very essence or kind of the nugget of what the gospel message is. We're really leaning these three weeks on Tim Keller's work. So if you don't know of his preaching or his writing on this passage, we would really encourage you to go and to find it. Before we get started in verse 25, I need you to go back to verse 11 because we hear Jesus say to uh, the crowds, he says, there was a man with two sons. That's how it starts. However, the heading on your, inside your Bible, there's a title for this and it's usually, it reads like this, the parable of the prodigal son singling out the one son. However, we're going to lean on Jesus's words more than we will this title. We believe that this parable is as much about the younger son as it is the older son and as much about the father as anything else. And so that's why last week we devoted all of last week to the younger son. This week we're going to devote all of our time here to the older son. And next week we're going to think about the father and what the Father has to say about us and what the gospel is and what the Christian faith is all about. If you were not here last week, let me give you a crash course on the younger son. He comes to his father and he says, give me my inheritance now. We discussed that the inheritance is usually bequeathed or given over to you when? Upon the death of your parent. However, in the middle of his life, he says, I want my inheritance and I want it now. So the father does. He obeys this command. He sells off half of his 
his goods. He gives the inheritance to the younger son. The younger son then says, peace, walks off to a distant land, and he goes and he squanders everything until he's broke, dead broke. The younger son finds himself not only without a job, but without any money and without any food, and he's literally in a pigsty. I mean, this is great writing, great storytelling on Jesus' part. He finds himself in the, in the, in the, at the base of a pigsty, wishing he would go back home. So then he gets to the end of himself. He's dead broke. He has nowhere to go, so he goes back to dad. And he takes the journey back. He stinks. He's smelly. He doesn't have many clothes. He's starving to death. And when he, he's within kind of glancing distance of the house, we see the father look up. And on the horizon, he sees the younger son. Now, this is a despicable son. He's an idiot beyond all measure, measures. He squandered everything. He's run off, and now he's coming back to the father. What will the father do? Well, instead of rejecting the younger son, he embraces him. He gives him a robe, a ring. He makes the fatted calf. And so that's where our story picks up right now. And this is where we're going to start our discussion about the older brother. What is the significance of the younger brother? What is the significance of the older brother? So to get started, we're going to have to pick on the firstborns in the room. By the show of hands, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Because once you're labeled a firstborn, I mean, it is over. It's kind of like all the Enneagram numbers, like, oh, you're a three, right? And everybody rolls their eyes at you, right? And they use it against you. And so firstborns in here... Just get comfortable to be uncomfortable. I mean, we're going to pick on you. I mean, all day long, saying from a middle child, right? As a middle child looking at Larissa and all of her, like, things, right? We get to do that. So these are the firstborns, right? And when we've looked at all of the countless studies scientifically, you guys are a mess, and you are full of quirks. And so, for instance, you are highly responsible, who wants that? Um, you are hardworking beyond belief. Uh, you are individuals that uh, do things that I wouldn't know anything about. You do your homework correctly and you turn it in on time. You color inside of the lines. This is the story. You are type A. You're fiercely loyal. You're loyal. You're dependable. Firstborns have an unwavering dedication to everything. They meet every task with diligence and precision. Firstborns are natural leaders, not because they are nat uh, leaders, but because they have to. From the very beginning of their life, they've had all of this responsibility heaped on them. We've got six kids, and we can see the differentiation in the six. We have two kids, the top two, who have the, the, the characteristics of firstborns, and then our middle two are definitely middles, and then we have the two babies at the end. And so with these two kind of brother and sister kind of uh, co-team, we can see Kennedy could raise a real human being by the age of 12. It was just a fact. You probably gave some of your children to her and she did a better job than you did. I and mean, it was just, it's just, these are facts. McKibben was an itty bitty CEO from the very beginning, right? You can tell if he was here, I would point out his collar and his, uh, and his tucked in shirt. This is just who they are. Oprah Winfrey, firstborn. Winston Churchill, firstborn. Beyonce, firstborn. And so the older son in our passage this morning is no different. 
He spends his entire life being the responsible one. He's the one who works diligently in this family estate. He's the one who's been rewarded. He's got the trophy case of dedication and achievement of what he's been able to do every single day. He wakes up with the same agenda. Where are you going to find him? Dutifully in line, doing what he was supposed to do. The same routine, the same responsibilities, the same sense of duty guiding all of his actions. He wakes up, he goes to work, and he comes home like a good soldier would always do, full of complete and total dedication. And this is where our story takes a turn. This is the unexpected um, disruption in the older son's life. He's been doing everything that he was supposed to do. And upon returning from the fields, doing what he's always done, like every single day, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. It's like every other morning until there was something different. It started with noise. Is that music, he said? Is that dancing? Did I hear someone say, yee-haw? Like, what is going on down there? And with this unexpected sights and sounds, there's a disruption to every ordinary day. The tent may be bouncing with the cadence of drums or dancing. We're not sure. All we know is the noise and the clamor and the joy from down there made its way up to the hillside. So when he crested it, he could hear what was going on. And all he said was, that's weird. What is going on? What is all of this noise? Is that a celebration? Dad's birthday is not till April. What's going on down there? And that's when the revelation comes to him. That's when the information lays on his lap. And that's when the unexpected became a realization of his well-ordered life. Your younger brother, he's home. And your father is celebrating his arrival. And with that information, with that revelation, everything changes. Nothing could have prepared a firstborn, an older son, for this kind of information. It's something he would have never, ever anticipated He would just walk in like every other day. He would enjoy a meal with his dad. Maybe there was a fire. Maybe there was reading at the end of the day. We're not sure. But a celebration, he's never crested the hill and seen and heard these types of things. This information, just to let you know, it hits him in the chest. He is not prepared for this kind of information. And that information, that revelation, immediately turns to an emotion, resentment resentment. You see, years before, we're not sure how much time has allowed, but years before, the father has been duped. The younger son comes to him and says, give me all that's mine. And the father does it. He gives him his inheritance. And so this younger brother has had special privileges before, daunting on the baby of the family or something like that. He disapproved then, and now today, Another foolish action of the father. Here we go again. More special treatment of my younger, my younger brother. 
And so who wouldn't be a little resentful? Who wouldn't be a little angry? The father is the spendthrift. He's the one who's ex, uh, extraordinarily, extraordinarily just reckless in this point. To be resentful is a good point. To understand the one emotion here is the one anger. The younger son was angry at the father. He was deeply resentful. This is how you reward bad behavior? You haven't even given me a small goat. This is the type of it, what it takes to get your attention. And the emotion of not just envy or jealousy, but injustice. The fact that it is simply unfair to act like this. Now, we can hear at the beginning of the parable, this is the parable of two sons. And maybe it's attempting for you and I to say this is a clash or a conflict between two brothers. But that's not how Jesus tells this parable at all. Instead, he goes from a very different angle altogether. The older brother is not upset at the younger brother at all. He's mad at the father. He's mad at you, he says. He's upset because it's the father's actions that he is so disapproving of. He's so unhappy about uh, the son's, uh, the brother, younger brother's arrival, maybe but upset of how he's being treated. It's the father who organizes a celebration. It's the father who snaps his finger and kills the fatted calf. Here it is. My dumb younger brother walks in like he owns the place and my father just melts and welcomes him back like a president or a king. And that's when the anger surges. Upon that revelation, it's not that the brother's back. It's the fact that the brother's back and he's being celebrated for being back. We think that Jesus is doing a comparison and a contrasting here. Where he's trying to make some kind of of levy when it comes to, to these two brothers. Making one out much worse than the other. You look at the younger son and you're like, man. You went too far, brother. And you look at the older son, you're like, you're doing everything and everything is justifiable, right? You can honestly, you you see where the older brother is coming from. But Jesus is not trying to compare and contrast. He's trying to make these two brothers equal. And in the same weight, at the same time, doing the same thing. You see, the way Jesus tells this parable is it's now the older brother's opportunity to to do the exact same thing that the younger brother did. And what did he do? Turn and disgrace his father. It's easy to look at the younger brother and to see him turn and disgrace his father. But now the older brother is acting exactly the same. And how do we know these things? Because the older brother is using first person pronouns. He starts making himself look much better. He says, I've worked my my fingers to the bone. All I've done is work, work, work. And when we put our two records side by side, I am much better than this sleazeball. I've never disobeyed you. I've never done 
anything wrong. I am the one who deserves the celebration. And you didn't even consult me. Don't, know, don't you forget that you're spending my inheritance money at this point. And he's not just mad. And he's not just angry. He's disappointed in his father. So much so that he looks at his father, he maybe points, and he simply says, look. He's treating the father like a son. He's reprimanding the father in this moment. I don't know much about Middle Eastern culture, but the way that we read it is that when the younger son comes home and we see this father hiking up his robe, maybe running after him and embracing him, that's the most shocking moment in the parable. We've never seen a father act like this. That's where we would put the emphasis. Yet in the Middle Eastern culture, filled with an honor and shame culture, it's this moment right here where all of the audience is going to sit on the edge of their seats because they will, they have no idea what's about to happen next. They've never seen a son disrespect a father like this. Maybe we don't pick it out in our English language or as in our English reading, but the culture tells us this, this is the raw data. This is the most shocking thing. And so how will the father responds to these types of accusations. Jesus tells us parables because we need pictures. We still need to be in the kindergarten to tell us what to know. We don't understand all the fancy words, so we need pictures and we need stories to understand the kingdom. And we know that Jesus is telling us this story and telling us this parable because we need a picture of who the father is. The father last week was shocking. How are you embracing this guy who's just run off and spent everything? And now the audience is like, what are you going to do two weeks in a row? The original audience Jesus has picked out is split into two different categories altogether. You've got category one and category two, and that's just how Jesus sees the world. In order to understand these two audiences, you have to go all the way back to verses 1 and 2 to pick up some of this information. Jesus tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees were being really raunchy and really causing all kinds of accusations toward Jesus because he eats with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And here in verses 1 and 2, you have the two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes on one side i.e. people who do whatever they want to and live however they want to on one side. And then on the other side of the aisle, you have Pharisees and the scribes, the keepers of the law, the moral majority, those who are theologically trained, those who are cultural conservatives. Those are your people on the other side of the aisle. And Jesus is coming back to these two audiences, the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees, and he's saying, in my parable, there are two sons. And both of these sons are representatives of these two people groups. The younger son, epitomized by tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. The older son, 
Pharisees, scribes, those who keep the law. There are modern-day Pharisees, and there are first-century Pharisees. He's likely, Jesus is really telling this parable for church folks. Because we, even though we may not be firstborns, we are instructed to color inside the line. We're instructed to obey no matter what. And what Jesus is doing is not comparing and contrasting. The younger brother is so much worse than the older brother. He's actually bringing them together to help you and me understand sin. He's telling us a story and he's giving us a picture to give us a picture of our heart. One is easy to point out. The one acting like an idiot. You're like, that's called foolish. I wouldn't do that. But there's just as dark and there's just as a rebellious heart that's deep inside a highly religious person. And it's not so easy to see. You see the Pharisees and modern day very religious people. What do we depend on? Like this older brother, we depend on moral integrity. We want to do the right thing. But Jesus says, when you continue to do the right thing, over and over and over again, there's a small sliver of your heart that drifts from obeying God out of purity to being judgmental to everybody. And it's the judgmental attitude that then does the elevation of one over the other. And Jesus says, older son, younger son, you both have dark hearts. The first person pronouns tells us that the older brother was only thinking about himself. And his unwavering commitment was only to himself. And his uncounted, dutiful tasks was for himself. And the way that he served and the way that he obeyed was for himself. And the only way for us to see his heart for what it was, for it was to be exposed. And no one is doubting the injustice of celebrating a rebellious younger son, but that's what it took to purge his heart, to know that he didn't love the father in the same way as last week, he only loved the Father's stuff. You've never given me a goat. You're wasting all of your money on him. I don't want you. I want your stuff. Every son and every daughter wants to hear these simple words. I love you. And I'm proud of you. But what's the Father doing in our parable? He's celebrating the wrong brother. He's saying I love you to the wrong brother. He's saying I'm proud of you to the wrong brother. I'm the one you should be proud of, he's saying. Don't you know what I've done day in and day, day out? He's the traitor. He's the Benedict Arnold. What about me? 
And so the climax of this story is not his anger. The climax of this story is the older brother's refusal to go in and to celebrate. He can't do it. He can't be around his younger brother, and he cannot be around his father, who would be so wasteful to go to this kind of extent. And so this morning's main idea is to understand that neither brother is righteous, but both, both hearts need to be, be corrected. Both the rebellious and the righteous, both the actions of the younger brother and the actions of disobedience of the, of the older brother. The older brother's actions are just as immoral as the younger brother. And that's who Jesus is talking to us this morning. Because Jesus hates our pride, but we can't see our pride. Jesus ha hates our self-righteousness, but we can't see our self-righteousness until we're pushed up into the wall. And we are the judgmental ones. And we're like, they don't deserve kindness. They don't deserve forgiveness. So who the heck are they? Something happened in me. I've been a middle child my whole life, full of rebellion. I hated authority. I've even pushed my mom because she was telling me I was wrong. But after spending 20 years with Jesus, somehow that middle son's just natural bent has become an older son's heart. I've become a moral conformist. I've become proud. Prideful. I've been self-righteous. And Jesus is telling us, church folks, both hearts are on the cusp of danger. One of the brothers rebelled by doing wrong. But the other brother rebelled by doing good. Tim Keller says that the main barrier between older brothers and God, Pharisees and God, the main barrier between church folks and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. Because with every good work, you think you are earning your salvation. With every moment of goodness, you think, aren't you proud of me, Dad? And with enough of those stored, you think you can earn your salvation. Let me tell you, God wants to throw a party for all of his sons and all of his daughters. But it's not because of anything that we've done. It's the fact that the family is back together. And that's it. If you think that God loves you because of your good works, it's not true. If you believe that God continues to love you because of your good works, it's not true. God loves you because you're his son and you're his daughter and he has called you to himself and he has adopted you and made you his. That's it. Does he want you to obey? Sure, but the basis of your relationship is not your actions, but because you are blood bought by his son, the real son, and adopted you into his family. And so self-righteousness can be destructive. Let me say it a different way. Self-righteousness is destructive. 
because this parable is warning against our judgmental attitudes and our superiority when we look down on others. Y'all, there's a Pharisee living in all of our hearts. There could be. The older brother in this parable is likely one of the ugliest, most spiritually unattractive people in all of scriptures. We can't stand him. We look at him, we're like, why can't you just go in to the party? But there's a Pharisee living inside of all of us. So the through line of all of chapter 15 is pretty easy. Something's lost and then it's found. Coins, sheeps, sons. It's pretty simple. However, most people in understanding literature and motif says it's more than just things that are lost and things that are found. Most people who look at literature say that the through line is actually celebration and joy and gladness and a party. Because what do we naturally do when things that were lost are found? The older son is so unattractive because he simply couldn't celebrate the thing that was lost, found. Instead, he was stingy and resentful and proud and bitter and unrepentant and forgiving and unwilling to show grace. And so the older son this morning should be a mirror to some of us and we should see our lives and to challenge us, are we judgmental? Do we think ourselves superior? Are we resting on our morality? Are we resting on our ethics to make daddy love us? When in fact, it's simply the fact that he has called us yours. So there's two questions that I wanna ask you this morning to know if you have a Pharisee's heart, if you have an older brother's heart. I'd love for you to write these down because it may take a week or a month or maybe a year for you to start seeing this in your heart. Maybe not be a, a, just a snap for you to see these things, but I think with these two questions, over time, you may be able to see and know how to repent. First and foremost, do you lack joy when you worship God. That's what this passage is about, is joy and gladness and celebration. Because we know who we were. And now we know whose we are. And we can't help but be joyful in our worship to God. Or we know our story of death that has become res resurrection the story of brokenness that is now being mended together by the very hands of Jesus himself and that overflow is joy in our worship of God. Notice I didn't say expressive. It's not that you have to run aisles, right, and scream hallelujah, but is there true, livable joy inside your heart in our worship of God? And then number two, do you have judgmental remarks about the people who do not meet your moral standards? Are you judgmental when other people miss the mark? 
And that's the spirit of superiority. And Jesus says, we're all, we're all on the same playing field. For all have sinned and come short. The only perfect one is King Jesus, and that's who we serve. Amen? Let me pray for us. Older brothers, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But isn't it fitting to celebrate and be glad for this? Your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. This morning, we celebrate the Lord's table. Lord, we thank you for you have come to seek and to save that which is lost. That is your mission while you are here on earth to run after and to rescue. You are on a rescue mission. And so this morning, we know what it's meant to be rescued, to be saved. And so all in here who have that rescue story, we want to feel your presence this morning to understand what it's meant to be lost and now to be in our right place. To be a sheep that had wandered off and is now with the herd. To be a lost coin but now in a purse. And two lost boys that are now sitting at a table. Lord, you want to rejoin the things that were lost and make them found. Maybe, just maybe, you're a moral conformist. And you believe that the only way to get to God is for you to be awesome. To be perfectly obedient in all things. Lord, I pray that you forgive our older brother's hearts this morning. A heart that thinks that it's all up to us. Reveal where we've come short this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, it too is a table of remembrance. A remembrance of not only your salvation, but the salvation of others. People who were too far gone that you had given up for, but still find themselves welcome to the table. And so this morning, it is a community meal, knowing that each and every one of us who have been called by the Lord and follow him, that's who this table is for. If you find yourself on the outside of the tent looking in because you don't know a relationship, I would encourage you find me after the service and we can help you see what it means to start a relationship with King Jesus. So all rise and stand to your feet. Know that these tables are open and they are welcome for sinners each and every one of us. Take and be blessed.